G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. Well, Dad, today we have a, a really special treat on the podcast because we are joined by David Cherry. Uh, and David Cherry is a clinical and forensic psychologist who has over 40 years experience in working with adults who are troubled by issues relating to depression, anger and anxiety, as well as working with children, adolescents and families. As a trainer, David has run over 4,000 training events from brief speaking gigs to small groups, right up to groups of over 500 people. On a brief side note as well, uh, David, I know you and Dad have been catching up for many years, uh, having a regular chat with another friend, and I know how much Dad has gained from those chats over the years. So super excited to be speaking to you today on the podcast, and and, uh, I'm looking forward to getting some of that wisdom that Dad gets to tap into regularly. Oh, well, I get to tap into his as well, as well as our, our other colleagues, so we're all lucky. Great to have you join us, David. I've always admired your practical view for things making more complex things seem more straightforward. So we'll see how that goes. That how that goes. But I always get that from our conversations, David. Great to have you with us. Good. Well, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> well, David, it's actually a, it's a great time to be having a chat to you. I think you know coming out of the pandemic after we've been through a bit over the last few years. One of the themes that's come up for us on the podcast recently is the many benefits that can come out of making deliberate choices and it becomes a bit of a buzzword in in some circles I think that idea of living with intention in many ways and I think it is a good thing to do though but it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do in terms of there's potentially many distractions as we spoke about last week and many factors in our in our way for for doing that sort of stuff so very much excited to chat with you today about all this sort of stuff but I suppose just to start off what I'd like to know is what exactly constitutes a habit because for example if we could perform the same task every day maybe over for a period of a couple of weeks we can potentially find ourselves falling out of that after a, a short period of time so wonder what uh, on a broad level actually constitutes a habit so what i'd say is that habit is a sequence of behaviors or thoughts that hopefully ideally um, save us time and serve a positive purpose unfortunately however some habits that we fall into which could be, I don't know, overeating, not exercising enough, not flossing your teeth, or spending time with people that we know it's not a good thing to spend time with them because it's it's not in our interest. Sometimes we form bad habits and then we don't know how to go about changing them. So for me, a habit is just either a sequence of behaviours that ideally will serve our interests, or it can be um, a sequence or a, a number of thoughts that are associated and kind of form a groove in our brain. Yeah, well, it's such an interesting thing because I wonder then to what degree do we have control over our habits? Because, you know, like this idea of free will is something that, you know, you could spend lifetimes almost arguing over. But uh, but at the same time, it's a really interesting thing, I think, because, you know, our habits are so ingrained sometimes to a point where it becomes automatic. So what control do we have over something that potentially isn't even necessarily conscious? So some behaviours or habits will have no control over, particularly, say, for example, in an emergency, if you're driving along in your car and another car crosses the wrong side of the road, ideally without thought, your brain will just turn the wheel in a direction which hopefully will help you. You'll have no control over that. So there's a whole lot of habits over which we have no control. Interestingly, a lot of the choices we make on a daily basis, for example, around purchases or our responses to others, are unconscious, if you like, and we're almost pre-programmed to do that. We're pre-programmed to do it because 
we've grown up with a particular way of thinking or advertisers have drawn us into behaving in a particular way. At the same time, however, there are a number of behaviours that we are aware of and can change if we want to. It's also important, however, that um, if you want to change your behaviour, that you understand the principles that will make it easier for, to, for you to change the behaviour. And so one thing with that that I find with any change that people are looking to pursue and changes take a bit of effort, people sometimes wonder how long is it going to take to establish a new habit or maybe even to get over a, a bad habit? Do you have any thoughts about that, how long it actually takes? I can't claim to have read all the literature on habit formation, but there is some view that it takes a certain length of time and people differ um, in regard to that. The two people whose work I particularly like are BJ Fogg's book, Tiny Habits, and also James Clear's book called Atomic Habits. I think it's BJ Fogg is particularly firm in the idea that it's more the frequency of the new behaviour that makes a difference. So I can't say with any certainty how long it will take a person to, say, let's say, acquire a new habit, but certainly to acquire a new habit, you, you need to be engaged in that new habit or new, new behaviour at a high level of frequency over a reasonable length of time. So I can't really say exactly how long, but certainly frequency is important. That's an interesting side, the frequency. Actually, I should check something with you that I sometimes mention to clients who are looking to change a habit, for example, acting over forcefully in certain situations with anger management or it might be, again, reducing an addiction. And one thing I heard years ago is that 90% of relapses in changing a behaviour like an addictive behaviour happen within the first four months. So very loosely, I often suggest to people, well, if you keep on changing a behaviour for about a four-month period, then you're really stacking the odds in your favour of continuing that habit, even though you've still got to work at it. Would that roughly, would that make any sense to you with observations you'd made or...? or Look, it sounds... Sure. Look, it sounds, it sounds reasonable, and you may know far more than I know about working with people around addictions. I think what's really important in there is that rather than commenting particularly on that because I don't feel I've necessarily got the expertise, what I think is really important for people, and, and you'd know this from the literature on you know, working with people with addictions, is that people, when they do the inevitable thing, whether it's going back to not exercising or going back to using a substance you'd prefer not to use or going back to overspending and developing a difficult um, relationship with your partner, that people understand that that may happen and that they don't beat themselves up when it does happen. And as you would know well, both of you, as soon as you start to beat yourself up, it puts you in a position where you want to just go back to the behaviour you're trying to escape. So that's a really, really important thing to understand that people will go back to the behaviour that they prefer not to engage in and then learn where possible to not beat themselves up about once they do that. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It, it strikes me that uh, lapses are normal on the way of people trying to change a habit in some way, not getting too discouraged by that. But um, well, one of the things that strikes me, David, when you're mentioning about the frequency of a behaviour, keeping up a frequency of behaviour, that's so important and relevant for, again, building routines. So sure. just say in terms of habits and developing routines, what's the importance of developing routines in our everyday life, would you say? So there's all sorts of interesting issues in there, which I'm sure you're aware. Uh, I'd encourage everybody, if they've got time, to look at Catherine Price's book called um, 
the power of fun. It's just a really, really interesting um, book for all sorts of reasons. She's inviting us all to have fun. She makes the point that our life is largely what we focus on. So she encourages us to focus on at least a part of the time in having fun. But you know that's sort of one kind of bit of a side issue, but it's an interesting point. In terms of routines, routines are really useful to us because they save us time and we do we engage in many routines without thought. So it could be getting up in the morning, you know, brushing your teeth, getting dressed. If we had to think about all of those things and how we did each of those things every day, we'd just be exhausted. However, we do have routines which hopefully serve us and help us. And if you want to acquire a new behaviour, it's useful to think about where you can put this new behaviour at the end of an existing routine. So, for example, BJ Fogg in his book Atomic Habits, um, he talks about how he wanted to get fitter. So he decided, um, this isn't the exact example that he uses, but I'll give you this example. He decided something like each time I clean my teeth, I will do a single push-up. And then he extended that each time I clean my teeth, I'll do three push-ups or four push-ups. So putting the desired behaviour at, at the end of an existing routine is really, really useful because that existing behaviour serves, serves as a prompt for the new behaviour. The second thing that both um, BJ Fogg and James Clear talk about is the absolute importance of going for tiny gains and celebrating tiny gains. And you know, we all know somebody and there might be somebody in this Zoom meeting who's done this, decide we're going to get fit. So you think, well, next Tuesday, I'm going to run a marathon. And miraculously, you decide to run the marathon and um, you do it. But then you think, no, I'm never going to run again. So having modest goals and understanding that small changes over time can have really dramatic results. Yeah, I, a, I could I could say more, but I'll I'll pause for a bit. So yeah, no, I'm, I think that's yeah. a it's a really good point. And there's there's a fellow that I often come back to who it's a bit of a sporting example, David. But his name was Sir Dave Brailsford, and he was a, a cycling coach. And basically, he was a British cycling coach. He went to the British cycling team when they had had you know a hundred years of of relative misery. That basically, I think they won one gold in a hundred years. And he developed this principle. I think he called it the power of accumulated gains, or, or the one percent accumulated gains, is what he called it. And he looked at the cycling team and thought, well, instead of looking at what kind of you know macro shift can I make to the team if I break it down to every single level where are all the tiny little improvements that we can make across the board whether it be even stuff like you know having a white floor so they could see the dust better in the gears and all these tiny little things which over time accumulated to form a a greater shift and I know that's a big part of James Clear's book Atomic Habits as well where he even has like a little bit of a, a maths problem where he talks about for example over the course of a year if you you make one percent improvement as opposed to over the uh, course of a year you make one percent decrease in improvement what's the uh, opposite of improvement there it slipped my mind but the difference between those two things is so kind of marked and and it's interesting because i think we you know potentially live you know live in a society in some ways where potentially you have a bit of a, a detox type attitude where you almost might act a certain way for a while and then look to you know maybe over the course of say a week or a month kind of completely change it up and act the opposite way to kind of fix everything. And then you can go back to acting how you were in the first place. But I wonder if you could almost speak to the power of building up, say, the, the gain in those 1% increments rather than looking at it and going, well, how am I going to change things in a, in a grand way? 
All right, fantastic question. Thanks, Rowan. So one thing that's important for all of us, and hopefully your listeners will um, take this to heart if you like, there's a massive amount of evidence that shows that tiny changes in behaviour sustained over time make a difference. So what I'm about to say might build optimism or it might tear it down, okay? But I'm pretty sure it's um, BJ Fogg, he says in his book, that um, if you have good habits, time is on your side. If you have bad habits, time is your enemy. So that's a good thing in a way, but it's also, you know, could make you kind of a little bit miserable. But um, a really interesting thing to think about is all the research that's been gathered together by a very interesting um, English health journalist called Peter B. So her first name is P-E-T-A. Her second name is B, like the buzzing B. And if you do a search on the internet, um, you'll get all sorts of paid content with of Peter B's, or if you just keep going further down and further down and further down, you get exactly the same content for which you don't have to pay for. But her material is extraordinarily useful, and she's drawn together lots and lots of research around tiny changes in behaviour that make a difference. Okay, so for example, um, there's one really interesting piece of research that looked at the benefits for office workers of, for, of moving as little as three minutes per hour. That had all sorts of benefits in terms of their efficiency, their physical health, and their mental health, okay? Um, and Chris and I and our other colleague, we've been talking a little bit recently about so-called high-intensity interval training. So getting people to do, it's roughly probably about 25 minutes or half an hour of exercise every five days, but only in brief, intense 30-second 30, 30 bursts followed by three-minute rests has shown to have enormous gains increasing people's aerobic capacity. So one thing that's really important, I'll just encourage your listeners to think about the importance of making small changes, committing to small changes where you're able to, and sustaining those where possible over time. And seeing gains, and I think you're talking about this, Rowan, seeing the benefit or trying to tell yourself there is benefit in incremental change, which is sustained, and not having a boom or bust mentality. So boom or bust mentality can leave you just feeling kind of miserable when you do the inevitable thing of go back to the old behaviour or fail to follow through with the new behaviour. Absolutely. it's uh, Yeah, that's a great example with the, the HIT training, but uh, it's like I heard a story one time of someone who was in a, a negotiation over a period of days and the person on the other side of the negotiation about once every hour for literally a minute would leave the room and come back and... Apparently this person could stay, you know, engaged and obviously, you know, very sort of in full control of everything over the course of, you know, an eight-hour quite intense negotiation. They found out over a couple of days that this person was going out and doing, you know, just a couple of seconds of Tai Chi outside the room and that kept them enough to literally be on their toes for this eight-hour quite intense negotiation process. But I think that's such a good point that you make about making small changes that are sustainable. And and what I wonder then, and, and this maybe speaks a little bit to the mechanics of habits, but why is it then hard to change our habits even at that small level because you know I can I can put my hand up at times that you know you, you might want to make a change and even at a, a small you know what would seem to be a manageable level even after a couple of days that can seem still uh, like it's quite a challenge at times. Sure okay so I suppose what I'd say is it helps people to put the new behaviour at the, the end of an existing chain of behaviour so that's what that's one thing. Secondly often when people want to change behaviour 
they go for too big a change rather than a small change. So going for a small change, also uh, celebrating the success is really important. So you can celebrate your success just yourself or you can celebrate with somebody else, which brings me to another important thing, which is uh, you're more likely to change your behaviour if you've got a commitment partner. Now, your commitment partner could be somebody you're going to do this thing with, which is you're going to go off and exercise, or it could be somebody like a close friend or a family member. You, you might just say to them, look, I'd like your help in changing this behaviour, and they'll go, what? <laughs> and you just say, well, look, I just want to tell you, when I do this thing, I'm going to just come and just let you know that I've done it. Okay, so letting other people know that you're going to do it is important in two ways. One, they might support you, but just saying, well done. But the other thing is, we might be prepared to engage in a new behaviour for ourselves and that might motivate us, but it may motivate us even more if somebody else says, well, look, I would really like you to do this and you tell them that you're going to do it. So you can, it's not quite tricking yourself into becoming motivated, but it may help you to become more motivated if you let another person know that you're going to do this thing. So there's some things that may be helpful. The other thing, however, is that often people believe that it needs to be effortful and it needs to be tiring in order to for a, a positive change to take place. So people um, are interested in thinking about the mechanism of that. They might read a book called Willpower by two authors called Roy Baumeister and John Tierney, and that's just an extraordinary book. And they talk about, I give examples, massive amounts of research, but they just talk about people practising having a good posture. Those of you that can see me can see me, I'm sitting up very straight now. Just simply practising having a good posture for a brief period of day led people to be able to sustain attention during unpleasant tasks, okay? So any effort to build our capacity to remain at difficult tasks has unexpected benefits. So... What I'm saying is you might focus on the change, the particular change of behaviour, but you might be able to facilitate that desired change of behaviour by doing something else that's tiny that also has another benefit. Have I explained that reasonably well? Yes, I like the sound of that. It reminds me of the general principle of using our frontal lobes. It's sometimes doing the hard thing when the hard thing is the right thing to do. Now, what mm. you're mentioning about that example with posture, in a way, it's in a sense a hard thing to do, as in it takes a little bit of concentration, but it's actually quite accessible. It's actually not mm. so hard. So I mm. like the way that you're describing that. It's a, there's a discipline involved, but it's doable. Mm. If you keep things simple, if you keep things small, and that, that's what struck me as you were describing a lot earlier, you know, keeping things small, keeping things simple. I was reminded of Roy Baumeister and how he emphasises that willpower is a finite resource. Mm. And a number of things that you're describing, uh, like attitudes or an approach or a strategy that someone can use from within themselves... I'm interested in what ways outside ourselves, like the commitment partner, I like that example, that's almost like something from our environment, something outside ourselves. Are there other ways that can help us change habits that draw on our environment in some way or drawing on or changing our environment? Fantastic. Thanks, Chris. So two things. One is, um, I've learned this recently, and probably you two know this already, but apparently um, our visual cortex and the energy that our brain puts into processing visual information is massive compared with all these other senses. So we're really influenced by what we see. 
So one thing that I think is important is if you want to have a really good prompt to engage in a new behaviour is having visual prompts. It could be a post-it note or whatever. So that can encourage you to engage in a new behaviour because you've got a reminder to do something. The other thing, and this might be what you're also talking about, Chris, is removing from your site or making it inconvenient to engage in a particular behaviour. So you might think, well, look, I really like those particular things. They're always at the front of the fridge. And sometimes, and this has been researched, just putting something that you really, really would like to eat at the back of the fridge or possibly up the back shed, or you just decide you're never going to buy it or you're not going to buy it the first time you see it, for example. So you could do all sorts of things like that. Another example could be, this goes to the the idea of a sort of a gateway behaviour, but you could have the experience that whenever you go to a particular shopping centre, you nearly always go and buy something you would prefer not to buy. So you might just decide, well, look, I'm not going to go to that shopping centre or, yeah, I'll go, but I will leave my credit card behind. So there's a, a number of issues there or principles there, if you like. One thing that prevents people from developing new behaviours or giving up undesirable behaviours is people often resist doing the smallest thing that may make a difference. And the example I nearly always, when I talk to different groups about this, is um, where parents have difficulty in changing a child's behaviour, I will often have discussions with them about, well, have you done this or have you tried that? And sometimes parents will say, well, look, that wouldn't work. And I would say, well, have a go. And they say, well, it would work. And then sometimes they try it and it actually works. Okay, so always do the small thing that may make a difference and recognise importantly that the behaviour must may have to be sustained over time. So I've just got one other point in regard to the, the environment. As you know very well, as you both know very well, we are enormously influenced by the people that we spend time with. So if all your friends smoke or some of your friends smoke and you really want to, to give up smoking, you might decide for a period, maybe not give up those friends, but just spend less time with those friends in the period that you're starting to give up um, smoking. You might know that if you um, drink alcohol, you're always going to have a cigarette and you're not too much fussed about drinking alcohol, so you might just decide for a time to not drink alcohol. So looking at the, the broader environment, who you spend time with and the prompts that, that come from the wider environment and doing small things to help manage your focus is important anyway. Yeah, I think they're all such great points, David. And I remember that was one thing that I really took from the, the webinar that we did together last November it was around the time where uh, I think it was a Muhammad Ali documentary that was on TV it was a Ken Burns one and I'm a, a massive Muhammad Ali fan and you know just absolutely respect him so much and and since then I've actually had Muhammad Ali as my phone screen and it's almost been a uh, it's been like a bit of a reminder to myself to be accountable to I suppose certain values and certainly things that I, I want to remind myself about that in many ways Muhammad Ali embodies and there's things I've even put up on my bedroom wall and, and all this sort of stuff because I, I think it, well I've noticed the difference anyway but but what it suggested to me is the degree to which it helps to curate certain elements of your life like that like something as small as you know the background on your phone and and you know so often people have it as, as people they love and all this sort of stuff but I think yeah it's such a good point to look at other elements of of you know for example another thing is you know going to the supermarket and as you say going all right I'm going to get these three things and nothing else and then almost making a beeline for it and then just getting straight mm. out things like that I think really help 
Well, I've got a really simple behaviour. I try not to, to buy a book the first time I decide to buy it. I just don't, I just don't do it because often you'll buy books and you don't get around to reading because you haven't got time. So simple things like that. And the other thing that you're talking about, Rowan, as I understand it, is I think the people that we do admire and sometimes consciously decide to admire influence our feelings about ourselves. And, and I, think, I think that's really important. And the other thing that you've spoken about is that if you want to acquire a new behaviour or get rid of a, an undesirable habit, if you like, thinking about how the change in behaviour is going to fit in with your desired positive identity. So whatever that is, and that's what you're talking about in relation to Muhammad Ali, there's all sorts of things about him that you probably admire, his perseverance, his incredible physical skill, his commitment to his religion. There's all sorts of things about him that you probably admire, and that would be part of your desired identity, if you like. So I think that's that's important. Now, when you talk about identity, I'm interested how that might relate to how you feel about yourself in certain ways, the notion of feelings, because when we talk about habits, we can talk about changes in behaviour, we can talk about our thinking. You and I both have a strong background in cognitive behavioural therapy, which looks at thinking and behaviour. But how do emotions tie in with habits, positive and, emo- and negative emotions, so to speak? How, how does that influence how we engage with our habits? I'll start to talk firstly about um, the importance of paying attention to your physical habits and your behaviour habits, which we've spoken about now, but also paying attention to your thinking habits and developing an awareness over time of what, what our thinking habits are. So one thing that many of us suffer, I'm not talking about we three necessarily, I'm talking about sort of the, you know, the, the, the wider population, is being excessively self-demanding and perfectionistic. So if you're a perfectionist and you say to yourself, I must succeed in everything that I do and if I don't, you know, I'm not very worthwhile, et cetera, et cetera, when you do the inevitable human thing of going back to the behaviour you want to get rid of or you don't acquire the new behaviour, you're going to beat yourself up and feel badly about yourself. So that's having reasonable expectations of yourself is really important so you don't feel bad about, you know, when you don't do as well as you would like, for example. But the second aspect of that is, which you may be talking about, is being prepared to celebrate even the tiniest success so you associate the beginning acquisition of a new behaviour with a, with a positive feeling. So I'm not sure if that's exactly what you were asking about, but they were the first thoughts about what you just said, Chris. Yeah, they're good examples. Well, I suppose one thing that then that I wonder, David, is uh, looking at, you, you mentioned, say, like undesirable habits and, and looking to, to stop undesirable habits I suppose what uh, what makes an undesirable habit in the first place? Because if it's something that we've picked up, it's likely that that we've engaged in it over a period of time, and that we've seen some benefit in it in the first place. But I wonder if you could help us maybe discern between undesirable habits and and habits that are, are more desirable. So I suppose for me, an undesirable habit is one that doesn't serve your interests. So it could be it's not good for your health, for example. So we're all aware that eating certain foods over a long period of time aren't good for us. So it could be an undesirable habit if something doesn't serve your long-term interests in terms of your health. Um, another possible undesirable habit is doing something that loses you friends because you've got a short fuse. Or it could be remaining in situations, say, for example, in relationships where they're not particularly good for you or not very, very productive. So I suppose... 
I'm just talking through or thinking through in response to your question, an undesirable habit to me is, is something that doesn't serve your interests. So if you want to get rid of an undesirable habit or an undesirable behaviour, the first thing I'd say that's really, really important is to develop an awareness of what that behaviour or habit is and then think about how you might want to be different. And in terms of getting rid of an undesirable behaviour, the first thing I think of doing is removing, where possible, the prompts. For example, in the case of people who might eat foods that they would prefer not to, you might just remove the prompt to eat those foods, for example, make it harder to get hold of them, you know, easily and immediately. And the second thing I'd say also, in addition to what you spoke about, is replacing the undesirable behaviour with the desirable behaviour. It's really hard to answer that in the abstract, but Chris has got something he's about to say, I think, go on. Oh, look, this is maybe a separate thing and we can come back more to bad habits, but for some reason it was coming into my mind, say, with parents looking to influence their children's behaviour, positive behaviours or if they're bad habits, to what extent are parents likely to get further with, dare I say, reward versus punishment, the carrot or the stick? Do you have any general comments about that? Because often parents are bring up concerns about their children's behaviour. How do I go about this? All right. The first thing, I, this, this is a huge topic, and as you may know, it's something that's near and dear to my heart. Okay, so thanks for asking this question. And I might say it probably came into my mind more because I know that you've done a lot of work with families in such a range of situations in the past. So that's drawing on your experience that way too, David. Okay. So in terms of influencing children's behaviour, the first thing I'd say is that whatever the age of your child is, I would always look to make sure that their basic fundamental needs are being met. So the child's need for structure, predictability, routine, care, love, concern, feedback. And in many families, as you would be aware, people are rushing. This isn't to blame people, but people are just incredibly busy. And sometimes children's behaviour becomes difficult or problematic just because they're too rushed and they're not getting enough of their sort of parents' time, if you like. So when I do work with parents, I always, one of the first things I ask them is, can you tell me about your daily, weekly, and sometimes monthly routine? And many children, in particular in the middle to late childhood and not so much in adolescence, because children often decide to do what they like at that age or get more opportunity, but many children in middle childhood and late middle childhood, they're overscheduled and they're doing too many things. So that's one thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say, and you know very well that this is my view, parents can't be their children's friend and parents love their children, but they have to have the ultimate say about what happens in the family. And they, you can't leave children to make decisions for themselves. Otherwise, you know, by the age of three, they might have harmed themselves in all sorts of ways. So structured predictability and routine, praise and encouragement a lot of the time, but also consequences for some sort of where there is, you know, really undesirable behaviours. So it could be, for example, that a child agrees to do a particular thing or they say they're going to be home at a particular time and they're not. If the child's going to engage in that behaviour over a long period of time, for me, there would have to be some sort of consequence not 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 anything severe but it needs to be an agreement between the parent and child about the child taking responsibility for themselves commensurate with their age 
Yes, and now I'm not sure if that popped into my mind because of Rowan sitting next to me here and, <laughs> and he could comment on how well or poorly I've done in a number of those areas, but we won't go into that. And, and That's and a so whole other podcast there, David. <laughs> I think we, we better not get too far into that. But I think it's so interesting what you're saying and, and obviously it relates to children in, in terms of if parents enforce those I suppose, boundaries in many ways, but it also relates to, to adults and ourselves as well because I think that's that's what a lot of this sort of stuff is about in some ways is about almost placing those voluntary constraints around our habits and our way of living because, um, yeah, you talk about those undesirable behaviours. It's potentially... Uh, some of those that lead us to problems further down the track. So if you can nip those in the bud earlier on with some positive habits along the way, then that seems to be a great benefit to us. Sure. And one thing I want to say is that I think that it's easier in this relatively brief period of time to talk about acquiring new and positive habits. It's harder to talk in general terms about getting rid of undesirable habits. So, for example, if you... Um, are somebody who uses different substances because they're deeply unhappy, it would be really patronising for me to say, oh, just don't think about it or just don't go to the pub or just don't go to meet these friends. So it's easier for me in this brief period of time to talk about acquiring positive habits. It's harder to talk about getting rid of undesirable habits because that's more related, I think. Well, it's not always, but it's often related to our kind of our core view of ourselves and experiences that we may have had in the past, which is still distressing to us. So I don't want to give the impression to the listeners that I'm saying that it's just easy to get rid of, you know, undesirable behaviors or difficult behaviors. Yeah, certainly. And and that makes so much sense. And, and, and what I wonder then is not, you know, notwithstanding everything that you've just said there, is there a bit of a sense that, for example, if you do have some undesirable habits, you've got some bad habits, for example, if you build up, you know, start with, with a good habit and then maybe a, a couple of good habits around that and then maybe building some momentum of good habits, is it often the case where people, I suppose, start to build up a bit more of those good habits and it just builds momentum and then that can potentially help with overcoming some undesirable habits as well? Sure, absolutely, absolutely. But, you know, I always encourage people who are experiencing distress to always seek professional support sooner rather than later. But yeah, I, I agree that good habits can, can breed momentum and also can breed the belief that you can change. So one of the things that happens frequently with people who have a number of undesirable habits or would like to acquire new habits and don't know how to go about doing it, they simply don't believe that they can change. So acquiring some good habits can promote optimism for sure. But there's another issue in there that I wanted to take up and I'm not sure exactly I think it's gone from my brain. That's no, gone from my brain. Sorry about that. That's, all, that's no worries at all. I just wanted to go back to a point that you mentioned earlier before about, say, the first step towards overcoming a bad habit or, or installing a positive habit is bringing that awareness to it. And that was actually one thing that I really remember from that uh, that workshop that we did was talking about in driving, in, in traffic, sorry, was when you're driving is that there's a link between people who get angry in traffic and have heart issues and, and heart oh, disease. Oh, absolutely. And so that's something that I always remember now whenever you're in a, a slightly frustrating situation, which as we all get used to traffic again after the pandemic is, I've had a bit of practice at it recently, David, but it's, it's always been there at the back of my mind that, you know, you can't get too worked up because over 
time, this cumulative effect uh, builds up. But that idea of, of awareness, for example, like what, one thing that comes to mind with that is, for example, perfectionists who might be naturally very reflective people and, and be thinking about what they're doing and, and maybe constantly discussing with themselves whether their habits are the best for them, they're potentially going to be thinking a lot and maybe even overthinking about times, about you know their habits and all this sort of stuff. And, and what I wonder then is, is whether that maybe helps them to be able to change if they are, say, hesitate to the term, you know, bringing further awareness to it, but it's almost like overthinking in a situation. I wonder to the degree to which, say, awareness itself, does it maybe get to a point where you get maybe diminishing returns with just bringing awareness to something for, for such a period of time? Just speaking particularly about perfectionism, again, you're probably very well aware that it's not quite in epidemic proportions. But there are a lot of people who are thoroughgoing perfectionists, and I think it's encouraged almost by our society. So if the listeners, if you think you're a perfectionist, you may or may not be, but it's important to recognise if you are a perfectionist, it's not to blame you, it's not to say there's something wrong with you, it's just to say it's relatively common. I think the second thing to say about perfectionism is I think it's quite hard to change on your own and because it does require a substantial amount of awareness. So... It might be that you could change if you're a perfectionist by reading a useful book. So one very useful book is um, Jennifer Kemp's book called The Act Workbook for Perfectionism. That's a really, really useful book. But one core part, I think, of perfectionism that's missing for some people is a, a degree of self-compassion or sort of self-forgiveness, however you want, or self-acceptance. So what happens, I think, with many perfectionists, and I think not all perfectionists are the same, what happens with many perfectionists is they, just, they say to themselves, if I just work harder, if I just strive more, I will become perfect. And I, ha- I think that has the curious and lamentable and unfortunate consequence is if you're working towards the future constantly, you're never actually in the present. So the present isn't terribly enjoyable for you. So being aware that you're driven in that way can be useful, but it doesn't necessarily serve your purpose unless you're prepared to accept the way you are. And that, again, is a, is a kind of a thinking habit, isn't it? If you just have this beating yourself up, it's almost a habit, which makes it quite hard to change. It reminds me of that, uh, uh, I saw recently that Jim Carrey award speech. I think it was the Golden Globes one year where he sort of says, you know, I'm two-time winner, uh, two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. And when I go to bed at night, I don't dream normal dreams. I dream of being three-time winner, <laughs> three-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, because then I'll be enough. <laughs> and it's sort yeah. of, I think it speaks to that notion. That's fantastic. That's great. I love that. Thank you. It's, I'll put up a link on the podcast page no, for today. And I'll send wonderful. it to you as well, David, because it's, yeah. it's a, it's a, he's got about a sort of two-minute little rant that he goes on with it because it's, it's one of the funnier things I've seen and, and potentially, you know, just to, to digress for a second, potentially contributed to the maybe downfall of awards in many ways because he sort of rips back the curtain a little bit, but it's oh. very well done. <laughs> well, one of the things that comes across uh, to me a lot from the things you're describing, David, is watching out for one's expectations, not getting too grand or harsh with one's expectations. And so uh, going back to something we were talking about earlier, that popped into my mind then in terms of reducing a negative behaviour or a bad habit. I suppose one of the things to me is a bit of a go-to strategy is at least delaying engaging in that habit. 
even if it's only in 10 seconds at first, and that can even help build awareness. The person can feel a bit of an impulse or a reaction or an urge or, or even just notice that they tend to lapse headlong, fall into that habit when even a 10-minute little disruption, a 10-second disruption might make a difference. Any comments on that? Just a simple little thing, but even the notion of delaying engaging sure. in behaviour. Okay, so you've introduced or come back to that theme that I was talking about earlier, <clears throat> excuse me, which is always do the smallest thing that may make a difference. Delaying engaging the in the behaviour can help you understand what's what's driving the behaviour. So, look, I think that's really, really useful. Another thing that's sometimes useful where people might have to do something but are resisting doing it or don't find it enjoyable is thinking about the difference between having to do something and getting the opportunity to do something. So, for example, again, I'm not sure who I've taken this from. It might be it's either James Clear or um, BJ Fogg. They talk about uh, working with somebody who who's just brushed all the time. And one of the things that they find difficult is brushing first thing in the morning because they have to cook their children's breakfast. Whereas if they redefine it as, well, I'm getting the opportunity to check to cook my children's breakfast, you're going to think about it differently. So how we define things make a difference, firstly. Secondly, postponing doing something. And I think sometimes it's helpful for people to think about something that they want to do, but sometimes it's helpful to think about, well, I'm not going to do this thing that I want to do until I do this other thing that I need to do. So that can also help people postpone engaging in difficult behaviours because one of the important skills or capacities we all need to develop throughout our life is being able to postpone immediate gratification. Um, and you'd both be aware of that you know, famous experiment with the donut where children were offered an opportunity to eat a donut immediately or wait for, I think it was a very brief period of time, I'd be two or three minutes. And if they waited for two or three minutes, they would get a second donut. And this was an experiment that was done with children at age four, and they followed these children through many years later and found that children who could postpone gratification actually had more successful lives and were happier in all sorts of ways. So that's just an important skill or capacity for all of us. It's so true, David. And and I think there's so much about what we've spoken about today that is important for all of us. And and it was interesting, I was having a bit of a think uh, before our podcast today and, and had a bit of a shower thought with, with some things in terms of, I think, you know, as maybe I'll get a bit older and, and, you know, maybe sort of mature a bit more. I'd like to think so anyway. But I think there's an element of maturity, which is about, I suppose, voluntarily placing constraints about around ourselves and, and voluntarily having responsibilities. And, you know, as you mentioned, I think the first step is bringing awareness to some of this sort of stuff. But it is hard. It is hard in a range of ways. And that's where I think so many of the, the strategies and the little practical tips that we've spoken about today are so helpful and, and certainly have been for me and, and I'm sure will be for everyone out there as well. Oh, good. Thank you. Just the very final thing that comes to my mind, David, is about the pandemic. The last couple of years, people have had extra challenges that they might have faced. Would that have influenced how we engaged in positive or negative habits much, do you think, that broader extra stress people were dealing with? Oh, I think that it certainly affected people's mental health and physical health. Um, I think um, spending more time on screens hasn't been all that good for people. I think being away from our normal routines hasn't been all that good for people. I think there's possibly a small group of people where the pandemic and remote working so I'll say that in a different way. I think 
that there's many people who've actually benefited from remote working, giving people uh, more time at home, for example, and not travelling as much. But I think overall it has been really, really difficult for people. And I think it's the separation from people that we care about, the disruption of routines, which is really, really important to all of us. Also spending time, more and more time on screens, which isn't good for our eyes. It's also not good for our sleep. So I think certainly it has affected us in all sorts of ways. Well, it's been really helpful getting those tips from you, David, because part of where this topic came up is our most recent topic was on social media, the amount of time that people were spending on screens and also the different ways that behavioural technology or things that influence our habits was built in to different social media apps and programs to capture our attention and keep it. And so to be able to talk about those same, if you like, behavioural principles, but look at it as a, as a positive kind of thing, how we can use those principles to enhance positive habits, that's been terrifically helpful. So, yeah, thanks heaps for those wonderful tips. And I will just mention as well that uh, on our podcast page, David, which you can access at sykespeels.com.au, we'll put up a, a couple of links for today, uh, including a link to your newsletter as well, which I do want to mention too, because uh, both Dad and I are subscribers and, and my ears did uh, prick up when you mentioned Catherine Price earlier on, because I, I think that was in, in one of your more recent newsletters. And, uh, and I do look forward to those every month because there's always a, a very interesting story and, uh, and whether it be a bit of research or or there's always some interesting, uh, I suppose, element of psychology that comes out from that. And, uh, yeah, look forward to it and thank you. And, and we'll put the link up for that uh, on our okay. podcast well, page thank for you. today. Well, it's been lovely talking to the two of you today. Yes, I'd have to say about the newsletters too. I love there's always a quirky little touch and forever practical, just like the things you've described with us today, David. And, and fortunately, we get to talk with you about another uh, topic for our next podcast episode, specifically looking at dealing with things like screen time and habits associated with social media. So that'll be great to talk with you about that too. Great. Well, I look forward to that. <laughs>